It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday following a long Fourth of July holiday. A federal judge has blocked Kentucky from implementing its Medicaid work requirements, but the trend seems to be proceeding fast and furiously in other states that are looking to cut benefits to Medicaid enrollees. Could there be a readmissions quagmire? Reporting our lead story this morning is Alan Fink-Samnick. Nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is standing by in London to report on the largest ever health care bust. It involves more than $2 billion in fraudulent billings. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Money listener survey. And Monitor Money national correspondent Jay Paul Spencer checks in with his Medicare Advantage report. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ron LaHirsch, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Are all of you refreshing your browser every 15 minutes waiting for CMS to release the outpatient proposed rule? I didn't think so, but I am. Because I know as soon as it's released, Chuck will be asking me if I would write an article summarizing the important points. Oh, sure, Chuck. Let me just whip through those 2,000 pages and find the 10 pages that actually matter. Now, before anybody thinks I'm serious, let me be clear. Almost every time he asks me for an article, I've already started writing one. And every article I write allows me another opportunity to fulfill my main goal, educating all of you. Now, what's new for this week since I don't have the new rule to discuss? Well, I was contacted last week by a hospital that had one of their total knee replacements denied as part of the short-stay probe and educate. This was a patient on 10 medications with multiple medical problems, which were all well delineated in H&P. The surgeon even documented, given his medical comorbidities, he would be more appropriate for an inpatient procedure. The patient did well and went home the next day, and the admission was denied. Now, at this point, I must tell you, that I did not participate in the call with the QIO, and I have not yet seen the denial letter, but I know and trust the case management director to be telling me the truth. She says that the physician from Levanta, an ED doctor, said that it didn't matter if the patient met interqual criteria or what the doctor documented about risk because CMS doesn't want to pay Part A for one midnight stays. Now, this makes no sense at all. We all know that in 2016, CMS adopted the case-by-case exception for patients who require inpatient admission despite an expectation of less than two midnights. And this patient fits that exception and has, even has the orthopedist documenting that inpatient admissions warranted. Additionally, in the July 2nd issue of the Report on Medicare Compliance, Nina Youngstrom reprinted an actual denial of a total knee replacement from Levanta and their templated wording states that the admission in question was denied because, quote, the documentation at the time of admission did not support the expectation of a two-night stay, nor was there documentation of complex medical factors that would require the patient needing inpatient care despite not meeting the two-midnight benchmark. Now, this hospital plans to appeal their denials, and I agree. The Levanta physician reviewer is absolutely wrong. 
Now, many hospitals have adopted the philosophy that QIOs cannot be trusted to actually follow CMS guidance and are performing all knee replacements as outpatient and then admitting if a second midnight is needed. I don't think this is the right thing to do. If the QIO reviewers are misinterpreting the guidelines, they should be held accountable. Hospitals should cite the regulations and Levanto's own rules, words in their discussion and appeals. And if there's a pattern of inappropriate denials, report it to your CMS regional office. It makes no sense to give up compliant revenue because the QIO can't get things right. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listeners survey is Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning. Good morning, Chuck, and welcome back to all of our loyal Monitor Monday listeners. Hope you had a great 4th of July hiatus. I know that I certainly did on along the Milwaukee River Parkway watching all the great, fantastic fireworks here in Milwaukee as part of the Summerfest Festival. Very often I receive, and it's not unusual, um, emails from therapy providers asking about therapy regulations, the therapy cap and whatnot. But also from Monitor Monday, I receive a fair amount of these inquiries from people that aren't therapists but work in hospitals and are accountable for auditing therapy or assisting with verifying coding for therapy. And I received just such a letter last week, um, and it had to do with updating the frequency of a recertification of a therapy outpatient plan of care and that how are they supposed to adhere to a frequency of three times a week if the research is developed and then established late in the week and they want to know how do you get it started on the next week. So sometimes when you read the Medicare Benefits Policy Manual, and this is found in um, uh, Chapter 15, Section 220.1.3, under the various different uh, alphabetical numerations here. So let me uh, give a couple of insights here. Changes to the frequency can be made based on the clinician's clinical judgment, but they don't need to have a recertification. So number one for um, our listener writing in, if it was just to change the number of times per week, that's the frequency, you don't need to have the plan of care recertified. However, if it had reached a 90-day certification limit or whatever the certification was on the original plan of care, a recertification is needed for continued or modified therapy, and that needs to be recertified by the physician. So Medicare doesn't make it always easy to follow the certification requirements because they're written in different sections of the Medicare Benefits Policy Manual. But once again, if the therapist changes the frequency, it does not need to be recertified, only needs to be recertified if you've reached the limit of the original certification and more medically necessary therapy is needed. So now we're going to come back to our poll. For those who participated in a targeted probe and educate, how do you rate the process? Very good, good, fair, poor, or it's not applicable to you. So we're interested in hearing your responses on this. Very good, good, fair, or poor. Chuck will be back later with those results. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up on this broadcast in about nine minutes from now in your time zone, we're going to hear from 
David Glazer, Mary Inman, Alan Fink, Sam Nick, and J. Paul Spencer. This is Monday, July 9th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Monitor Monday is brought to you today by AHEMA, the American Health Information Management Association. Have you heard? It's happening again. The 2019 ICD-10 code updates are here. AHEMA has more than 20 coding experts currently working to review all code updates in their entirety. And they are creating webinar training to ensure you and your staff are prepared for success. In-depth, on-demand training webinars are available for ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, and specialties, including inpatient physical rehab, long-term care, physicians, clinical documentation improvement, and auditors. Purchase as an individual or for your entire organization at ahema.org slash code updates. Thanks, Clark Anthony. We're back at a program. Note: be sure to register to attend a very important webcast. It's on Medicare Advantage. Learn inside tips to avoid denied claims. It's coming your way tomorrow, and it features healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Now let's check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer, who's reporting on some risky business. David, what could be risky this morning? Well, good morning, Chuck. So. Our listeners know by now that I like to find things where the, conven- that the conventional wisdom is missing. So when I heard about the Supreme Court's decision that California was not allowed to require certain crisis pregnancy centers to post a notice describing services available to pregnant women, nor could it require unlicensed clinics to clearly state their unlicensed status, I immediately wondered whether the principles of that case would be more broadly applicable to other disclosure requirements on healthcare professionals. Now, I haven't seen any articles raising this question yet, but there should be. The healthcare industry is replete with situations where professionals are required to make statements to patients. For example, under Stark, if a physician group wants to qualify for the in-office ancillary exception, It must provide notice to patients who receive advanced imaging like MRIs, CT, and PET, notifying them of other suppliers that provide the services. In most states, when a physician has a financial relationship, um, if it's in certain business lines or service lines, the physician is required to disclose that to the patients. The news reports I saw focused on how the Supreme Court ruled that a state should not be compelling speech. So I read the opinion. Now, I don't think it's entirely clear whether this opinion is going to transfer to other disclosure requirements. Personally, I didn't find the decision to be entirely analytically consistent, and that was being a little generous. But one key point is that the court concluded that professional speech is not a separate category of speech, and it is entitled to constitutional protection. But it also noted that professionals can be made to disclose, quote, purely factual and uncontroversial information. Now, one particularly odd line of reasoning in the opinion is that, in this case, the state didn't need to require clinics to provide any sort of notice because there were other mechanisms where the same information could be communicated. And the reason I find this so odd is that there are always multiple mechanisms that you could use to communicate information. So under this logic, it would basically prohibit every single state requirement of disclosure. Um, But that's not what the opinion said. So Justice Thomas, who wrote the opinion, focused on another fact. Um, The disclosure requirements only applied to a subset of clinics rather than applying more broadly. 
And that caused the clinic to feel that the government was supporting a particular position um, rather than being viewpoint neutral, something that often troubles courts in free speech cases. So assuming that was a key part of the court's reasoning, there's little reason to think that the opinion would apply to a purely economic disclosure. But if you focus on the text saying that it's uh, whenever it's possible to get information to patients without compelling the speech, that suggests that a challenge to a, a notice requirement would be successful, and that basically a physician who wishes, wishes to challenge various disclosure requirements might find a receptive court. So in totally other news, CMS released its advanced BPCI participation agreement last week. That was fun reading over the 4th of July. Anyone wanting to be part of advanced PCI needs to sign that agreement by August 8th. So back to disclosures. In light of the Supreme Court's decision, do you have to tell? In the immortal words of the supergroup Asia, one thing is sure, only time will tell. Chuck, I'll be visiting my daughter at camp next week, but in two weeks, barring breaking news, we'll talk about standing orders and some of the common myths surrounding them. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in a law firm at Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And now with the latest news on the Medicaid racks, here is Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Uh, as the keeper of the ever-dwindling Medicaid RAC program here on Monitor Monday, I'd like to bring updates as to what is happening in the Medicaid RAC universe, if anything. Uh, the only update that I have on a state-by-state -state level is the state of Iowa extending their two-year uh, time-limited, you know, and I put that in uh, air quotes, exception uh, until July 1st, or actually June 30th of 2020. They have received another two-year extension from the previous two-year extension that they were granted in 2016. Uh, and it raises an important point. Uh, Med the Medicaid RAC program was created in, in the uh, uh, very exciting times of the Medicare RAC program, having identified millions of dollars that they allegedly we're going to be returning to the Medicare trust fund as far as from a post-payment audit perspective. The Medicaid RAC program has not uh, played out that way. The biggest reason is that some of the uh, data, we've talked a bit about the data problems that we have on a state-by-state -state level of making a determination as to just what services should be audited and what uh, is considered overpaid. But the probably bigger overarching reason why Medicaid rack audits never really took off is that the dollars that we're talking about uh, with regard to traditional Medicaid really uh, have dwindled based on the fact that most of these states now have a higher percentage of their Medicaid population under a Medicaid managed care plan or Medicaid HMO. Uh, now, what this means is that while the Medicaid rack program is still uh, out there in a very limited capacity, and there are many states that don't have an active Medicaid RAC program, it's important to remember that Medicaid state fraud control units are still rolling strong in certain states, particularly Indiana, New York, and uh, California, 
And overall, across the country, they are still collecting quite a bit of money. Remember that in the fiscal year 2017 annual report, which is the latest one that we have, Medicaid state fraud control units recovered $1.8 billion, which works out to $6.52 for every dollar spent on investigative activities. One thing that is rather uh, revealing about the Medicaid RAC program is that even as we have documented here that the Medicaid RAC program is disappearing, we hear very little about Medicaid audits in general and Medicaid RAC programs specifically when we talk about legislation uh, in an attempt to put forward a better auditing universe for the Medicaid portion of CMS. Um, and that, it, that is quite revealing. We, knew, we have talked again about data issues when we talk about what type of information they want to audit, but nobody is coming up with a legislative solution as of this point. Uh, it's been focused mostly on dismantling uh, arcane uh, Obamacare regulations and not particularly focused on post-recovery audits or in that, for that matter, uh, prepayment uh, audits of Medicaid claims. So it bears something, uh, it's something that bears a uh, study as we go forward. But at this point, uh, the Medicaid audit universe continues to be a little bit fractured, and we'll have to follow this as we go along. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent, J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a national senior healthcare consultant for doctors management. We now switch live to London. We check in with nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is reporting on the largest ever healthcare bus. It involves more than $2 billion in fraudulent billings. Good morning, Mary. Mary, the bus also includes some 600 nurses and physicians. Is that right? That is correct. Chuck, last week the Department of Justice charged hundreds of medical professionals in the largest healthcare fraud takedown operation in American history. The DOJ brought charges against 601 defendants, 76 of whom are doctors, for their alleged participation in schemes to bill Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, and private insurers for medications and treatments that were unnecessary and often never provided. Over a quarter of these defendants were charged for alleged involvement in prescribing and distributing opioids and other dangerous narcotics. Specifically, the takedown included 84 opioid cases involving more than 13 million illegal dosages of opioids. The DOJ also alleged that co-conspirators received kickbacks for supplying beneficiary information to providers who used the information to submit fraudulent bills to Medicare. All told, the DOJ estimated over $2 billion in false bill- billings arising from these frauds. An equally impressive statistic is that the takedown also resulted in 2,700 people being excluded from participation in the Medicare, Medicaid, and all other federal health insurance programs. To put a name to the face of this historic healthcare fraud operation, I have chosen to focus on three of the 601 defendants caught up in DOJ's dragnet. An anesthesiologist and pain management clinic owner, Dr. Zachary Bird, pharmacist pharmacy owner Omar Zubi, and physician assistant Gregory Sikorsky, and the charges that have been brought against the three of them. 
Dr. Zachary Bird was charged in a six-count indictment with allegedly distributing and dispensing controlled substances not for a legitimate medical purpose and outside the usual course of professional practice. Bird is an anesthesiologist that operated a pain management clinic called Physicians Wellness and Pain Specialists in Tampa. According to court documents, this clinic functioned as a pill mill where Bird prescribed large quantities of opioids to his patients. Specifically, from January 2015 to the end of May 2018, Bird allegedly prescribed approximately 5.2 million tablets of hydrocodone, methadone, morphine, and oxycodone at PWPS. Bird was arrested on June 25, 2018. Omar Zubi, a pharmacist and co-owner of Metro Pharmacy and Metro RX Pharmacy, and Gregory Sikorsky, a physician's assistant, were indicted in a 10-count indictment charging each with one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud and wire fraud, four counts of health care fraud, and one count of conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and pay and receive health care kickbacks. The charges stem from a scheme whereby Zuby and another co-conspirator allegedly paid kickbacks to Sikorsky in return for prescribing medically unnecessary compounded creams that were billed by Metro and Metro RX to Medicare. Metro and Metro RX also billed Medicare for prescription drugs that were not dispensed or were not dispensed as prescribed. As a result of these actions, from approximately January 2012 through February 2018, Medicare paid Metro and Metro RX approximately $5.5 million. These individuals are only three of the 601 defendants charged as part of last week's takedown. According to the DOJ, this historic and wide-reaching enforcement action a coordinated effort between DOJ, FBI, HHS, DEA, Department of Labor, IRS, 30 state Medicaid fraud control units, and other state and federal agencies, including 58 U.S. attorneys' offices, is just the beginning. The DOJ has a new data analytics team, the Opioid Fraud and Abuse Detection Unit, designed to identify medical professionals associated with high volumes of drug prescriptions, dispensations, and patient overdoses. In addition, AG Sessions has assigned a dozen prosecutors to focus exclusively on opioid and drug-related health care fraud, describing opioid addiction as the deadliest drug epidemic in the history of this country country. Attorney General Sessions affirmed the DOJ's particular focus in this space. If, as DOJ suggests, this historic takedown is just the tip of the iceberg, we'll be sure to keep watch for when the rest of the iceberg reveals itself in the months to come. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very, very much. That was nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner at the Constantine Cannon London office, and you can read her report in Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor E-News. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, a federal judge has blocked Kentucky from implementing its Medicaid work requirements. For more on this developing story, we turn now to Alan Fink-Samnick. Good morning, Alan. Well, thank you, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. While Medicaid work requirements in Kentucky have recently been struck down, the movement advances. Some experts call the requirements necessary. Others claim discrimination. Amid industry disagreement, there's one point of consensus. States are claiming their costs can't be met and are cutting health benefits of Medicaid enrollees. 
Kentucky eliminated vision and dental benefits to 500,000 enrollees after the federal decision. Virginia just passed Medicaid expansion and is working to assure new health coverages in place for residents by 2019. Missouri hospitals that don't contract with one of three state insurers for managed Medicaid face a 10% cut in fee-for-service reimbursement. Adults receiving Arkansas Medicaid who don't work, study, or volunteer for 80 hours monthly will lose their health insurance in the next, four, next two months. Who can find a job in two months, let alone find childcare or caregiving arrangements for their disabled adults and or children? If Medicaid benefits are cut, readmissions will skyrocket, especially for those dealing with social determinants. The numbers are already compelling. $1.7 trillion on 5% of the population. Readmission penalties already a hardship, especially for safety net facilities. It's frightening to think what the provider impact will be of forcing a benefit shift for those patients who need them most. Value-based care has prompted healthcare organizations to look at the social determinants, food insecurity, isolation, lack of housing. We can recite them now by heart like the Wizard of Oz, quote, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Montefiore Health System in the Bronx invested in housing, which decreased emergency department visits and unnecessary hospitalizations, yielding 300% return on annual investment. The new housing program costs $140 a night, less than the average overnight hospital stay. Right now, $1,791 at not-for-profit hospitals, $1,878 at state and local government facilities, and $2,289 at non-for-profit hospitals, and yes, those are nightly rates. Addressing the social determinants is a must to manage populations, plus assure financial sustainability for organizations. Program savings are compelling. 26% decrease in emergency spending, 10% reduction in healthcare costs of 2,400 to 3,600 per person when linked to community social services. Buying food, investing in housing, and paying for round trip appointments for transportation are far less costly than labeling patients frequent flyers due to chronic readmission patterns. Medicaid expansion opposed to work requirements is a commitment to address populations dealing with the social determinants, a reality for any community. Single households with annual incomes of $9,100 for one person struggle with high rates of unstable housing, chronic substance use, and mental illness. 25% of these poorest employees, enrollees, have complex chronic health and social needs. While setting work requirements for the able-bodied is well-intended, other options to tap Medicaid levers are a must. Massachusetts includes variables for homelessness, substance use, and neighborhood stress into its risk adjustment models. States involved in the CMS Accountable Health Communities Initiative encourage providers to screen Medicaid beneficiaries for health-related social needs and create social service referrals. Other states are also moving in this successful direction. Imposing Medicaid work requirements is already prompting a ripple effect from disappearing care access in increased emergency department visits, readmissions, and taxing already overburdened industry resources. Can we afford to take further risks? We know the answer. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan is a nationally recognized expert on social determinants of health.
Now is the time for the results of our Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Nancy Peckley. Nancy. Okay, let's take a look at our survey here this morning. Um, we asked about uh, targeted, probe, and educate, and how you would um, rate the process. And actually, the um, vast majority of our people um, indicated this morning that it was either good or fair. We had a number of people indicate it was poor, and only a very, very, very small percentage indicate that it was a very good process. We're interested in hearing from you on Targeted Open Educate. Um, CMS is touting this program as something that is the wave of the future, and um, according to Kim Brandt, it's really gotten a lot of positive feedback at CMS. Back to you, Chuck. David, let's take a look at some of the questions coming in. We've got a lot of questions, David. You bet, and a lot of them are for Dr. Hirsch. So, Ron, Sandra wants to know, so was the data service for the total knee you're talking about before or after the 1st of uh, 2018? And whatever happened to the two-year grace period that CMS is supposed to happening? Doesn't it also apply to the QIO? This was after January 1st, and the grace period only applied to RACs being able to audit status on total knee replacements. The QIOs can review these if CMS sends them as part of the routine one-day stay audits. It also should be pointed out that it's really only 18 months because the RACs, if they start on January 2020, they can go back six months. So be wary of that. Dr. Hirsch, it seems to me, like I'm, I'm with you, I don't understand, is there any downside to treating someone as an inpatient and appealing the denial as opposed to caving to your overly aggressive QIO on these? The only downside to the time frame is if you appeal and you can get the appeal um, done within a year, you still can rebill if you lose and get Part B payment. The other downside is that you want to make sure you're, you're right, that it's not just the physician's um, you know, saying, I'm going to admit everybody and you appealing all those. You want to do it when it's appropriate. Uh, I think those are great words to end with, Ron. I will just add, the only way we can hold people to the rules is if we're willing to fight an appeal. Chuck, I will turn it back to you. Thank you both, uh, David Glazer and Dr. Ronald Hirsch. We're going to continue to monitor total knee replacement. It's a very contentious topic. That's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, and Dr. Ronald Hirsch, whom you just heard, Mary Inman calling in live from London, Alan Fink-Samnick, J. Paul Spencer. We want to thank you for being with us this morning. We look forward to your being right back here next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday, and we hope you're going to join us Tomorrow for Nicole Emanuel's webcast, it's coming your way at 1.30 Eastern on Medicare Advantage. Learn inside tips to avoid denied claims. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday Interact. Monitor, thank you very much for being with us. Have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.